Hi, and welcome to the Mavericks Unlimited podcast. I'm your host, Chris Saroy, and this is the place to be to make your own rules, do work you love, and live life on your terms. Our guest this week is speaker, writer, and chef, Brooksy. Brooke describes herself as categorically homeless, having created a life as a digital nomad and entrepreneur. Brooke started as a highly acclaimed chef and food writer in New York. However, she suffered from depression and been on antidepressants since the age of 15, following the sudden death of her father. So she made a massive change by booking a one-way ticket to Malaysia and getting off the meds. Two years and 17 countries later, Brooke's focus is on advocating for mental health and wellness without the use of prescription drugs. What I love about Brooke is her direct approach to life, her joy and her passion. She has wisdom beyond her years and is radically compassionate. So let's hear what she had to say. So hi Mavericks, it's Chris here, your host from the Mavericks Unlimited podcast and I'm talking to you today from beautiful English Bay Beach in Vancouver and I have a very wonderful guest with us, uh, Brooke Seam, all the way from uh, from Reno, Nevada originally. Originally from Reno, Nevada. And now uh, a bit of a, a global traveller as it were. So hi Brooke, yes. how are you doing today? Hi, I'm, I'm doing great. I Good. mean, it's noon on a Friday and we're on a beach, so... I know it, it, it's hard life, isn't it? <laughs> it's very hard at the moment. <laughs> so, I know, right? So, uh, so Brooke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, um, thanks for having me. Uh, great to have you here. So, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you're up to in the world. Well, I am what I call categorically homeless at this point. Um, <laughs> my mom gets my mail, and I generally have about you know a couple weeks in one place before I move on to somewhere else but as of late I've been spending a lot of time here in Vancouver I started traveling about uh, two almost two years ago now right I had just turned 30 and I was living in New York City I'd been there for uh, eight years I think at that point and I had just this kind of one of those little tiny moments of realizations where mm. uh, my entire life changed. And I didn't quite realize it at the time. Right. But the short of it is that when I was 15, my father suddenly passed away and I had been put on antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs wow. in order to uh, manage the grief, mm. as they put it, when I was a teenager. And through a series of small decisions that nobody really thought twice about at the time or for the next decade and a half, the drugs were never regulated. They were never monitored. I just stayed on the same set that I was on when I was 15. And 15 years later, I was sitting in my apartment in New York City and uh, had just about to turn 30 and realized that I had spent half my life on these drugs and that I was still incredibly depressed wow. for someone who was apparently being treated for depression. <laughs> wow. So... It was at that point where I I'd also had this opportunity to travel around the world, and I kind of just said, "Well, I, you know, I can't, I can't say no." I wasn't particularly excited about it, to be honest, but I right. just kind of knew I needed something different, and so I decided to get off all the drugs because I wasn't going to be able to get them reliably, reliably filled in the middle of nowhere, Cambodia or Bosnia or wherever I was supposed to be. So I decided to get off of them, and that kind of started about a year long held process of withdrawal wow. and you know some exp explorations of different kinds of uh therapy techniques that ultimately led me to be able to live a life totally free of medication and actually feel like myself and functional and not have you know breakdowns in public and all of these things that people really try to do <laughs> <laughs> so that i mean that that's that's a huge process mm -hmm. right so you had this moment w of realization as you say right. then it starts starts this journey where well there's kind of two journeys weren't there there was the journey of traveling around the world yeah. but then the journey of as you say coming off the meds right. and kind of finding out how to live without that so mm -hmm. so tell us a little bit about kind of what how you did the the second journey the kind the of and finding finding yourself as part of that well, the best way I feel like I can describe it is kind of like going through puberty, but in your 30s. Oh, wow. Like, it was kind of that level of bizarre and terrible because one of the big things that I realized about this whole process and one of the reasons why I feel like people struggle so much when they're trying to get off of antidepressants and by the way, I need to preface everything I say with the fact that I am not a doctor, I am not a scientist, I am not a pharmacologist. Sure. sure, sure. I only have my own experience and then, you know, my experience of talking to others who have been in similar situations. So, right. you know, I am certainly not the authority on this, especially the one, you know, behind the 
behind in the lab. Right. Um, but in my experience, one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, we take these drugs, you know, in the time of need, and then however many years goes by, and all of a sudden, when we decide to get off of them, we realize we're not the same person, which makes sense from the fact, from one, from, or excuse me, it makes sense from the one hand, because you know, you've been on these drugs and you kind of have to get to know yourself without them because your mm-hmm. brain chemistry changes. But from just another hand, like literally time has just gone by and you've become used to processing your life one way. And then suddenly when the drugs go away, you process things differently and you're older. So right. it's just kind of like you have to get to know yourself in a way that you didn't do over all those years wow and so for me because i had gone on the drugs when i was 15 and my father died suddenly and so there was a lot of you know kind of um grief ptsd memory mm. loss around that and i was young wow. so by the time i hit 30 and got off the drugs it was like who the hell are you because the only frame of reference i had was who i was when i was 13 years old right which no one's the same at 13 as they are at 30. <laughs> so the whole, but I didn't get a chance to like grow into that. It was just suddenly figuring it out. So that's why I felt so much, you know, kind of like a second puberty because I would have these terrible emotional swings followed by things like, you know, my, my whole physio- phys- physiologic body was different. I don't think that's a real word, but my whole body <laughs> we'll was different. That. Like even, you know, the kinds of music I liked changed. Mm. You know, the kinds of clothes I wanted to wear changed because they felt different on my skin. Um, my sense of taste changed. My hearing got more sensitive. My eyesight got better. So it was things like, well, the Brook of two years ago liked to watch TV um, like to watch this program and eat this and the Brooke of today doesn't like that anymore. So what is wow. she like? You know, meanwhile, I was crying five minutes ago and now I'm laughing hysterically, like kind of what's going on. And it really has a way of making you feel completely insane, Wow, yeah, which quite. then makes you think, well, maybe I should go back on the drugs because clearly this isn't normal. And it, it's, it's a total total um com- mind warp you're completely reorienting mm-hmm. your your identity and kind right. of how you relate to yourself aren't you right and but yet you feel like there's this place you have to get back to when in reality you're not trying to get back to something as much as you are trying to reorient yourself in the world you live in now right 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 and so for me when i was going through all this i also happened to be traveling internationally which i think was a huge blessing because kind of getting myself right and getting to know myself again was effectively my only purpose at the time. And right. in each country I went to, there was almost this sense of, okay, what issue is going to come up here in this country that couldn't come up anywhere else in the world? Um, oh, interesting. For example, uh, like I said, I've had a lot of hearing sensitivity um, mm. to all sorts of noise that didn't happen when I was medicated and I, you know, I don't exactly know why. I've looked for some research on it and I really can't find any, but my guess is just that, you know, everything is more suppressed. Yep, yep. So, therefore, you know, you're just more aware Mm. of everything, including, for me, uh, noises. But when I showed up in Malaysia, that country um, in Kuala Lumpur is... (laughs) That's a noisy city. (laughs) It's so noisy. I mean, like, the entire place is under construction and not, like, in the kind of organized construction that we get, you know, in... In the, in, in the U.S. or whatnot. No, it's like some guy with a hammer just like banging on cobblestones <laughs> on the side of the street from 6 a.m. to midnight, and you're like, "What are you doing?" You know, right, and, right, right. <laughs> you know. And some then, meanwhile, there's somebody else down the street, like in the restaurant you're eating in, who has a saw that's cutting through metal. And everyone who's there, like, I don't know. I guess they're just used to it, but I could not handle it. Wow. And so. I sp- but I spent a month there kind of getting immersed in that noise. And then I got a break because we went to an island in Thailand right after where it was, you know, there was lots of lovely waves and, you know, birds chirping. And I kind of got a little break from the cacophony. And then we went to Phnom Penh in Cambodia, which was really noisy again. Oh, wow. But I was able to compare the progress I had made from Malaysia to Cambodia. Mm. And I did notice that even though I was still having a lot of issues in Cambodia, it wasn't quite as triggering for me. Right. Because I had been working on the issues. So 
Wow. That okay. continued to happen as I kept traveling. There was like a little little something in every place, a little gift that's like, okay, you're going <laughs> to deal with this this month. It's so, going to suck, but you'll get there. Right. So, I mean, let's face it, that kind of, the second journey as I referred to it, kind mm-hmm. of the, the, the identity journey would have been kind of almost hard enough if you were just in one place. Right. But the fact that you were traveling from, from place to place, a, almost like a different context to a different context. It's kind of, let's really stir <laughs> that part up and really go. So how did you, I mean, how did you keep yourself as grounded as you could um, kind of during that? Well, I don't think that anybody who was with me at the time would have used the term grounded. I, <laughs> I was so far off on a sideways map that, like, I didn't know right from, or up from down a lot of the time. Um, but... There were a couple of things that I kind of tried to keep in mind. And, you know, the first thing is that when I be- began my period of withdrawal, I started in New York City um, and I got off the first drug. And then I got off the last one. I got off the first drug in, I think, March was when I started getting off of mm-hmm. it. I got off the last one at the end of July. And then I left at the end of August. Okay. So wow. some of these drugs have a different length half-life and yeah, so yeah. you know ones that have a longer half-life stay in your system longer and the way they explained it to me was that you know if you have a drug with a short half-life and you stop taking it you're going to start feeling the effects of that within a day or two right and it could be really intense but the physical symptoms might only last for you know three weeks or so but if you have another drug where it has a longer half-life and you get off of it then you might not feeling what start you might not start feeling withdrawal symptoms for a month, six weeks, two months. So the last drug I got off of had a longer half-life. So I think that when I got to Malaysia, I started to actually ease into the true withdrawal period of that drug that doesn't hit you over the head with crazy shakes or (laughs) violent tendencies, but suddenly you're just totally off and you don't know why. Right. So I think that's what happened when I got to Malaysia, but... The things I kept in mind with all of that is, first of all, there were periods in between these really terrible mood swings and these kind of rage-filled outbursts that I would have, where I had these little glimmers of feeling like myself in a way that I had never felt before as an adult. Right. And it was a little hard to explain, but it just kind of felt like, you know, the the cellophane on my body had been lifted or... There was a quietness that perhaps I hadn't ever really felt or I would notice, you know, my creativity was off the charts in a way it had never been. I started painting, which is not something I had ever done. My writing was getting better and easier. Cool. Um, You know, on I would start I would laugh at things in a way I hadn't really laughed at them before. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember like going on a few dates with a boy and feeling like middle schooler i was so getty and i hadn't (laughs) felt that in 15 years and so there were little things like that that kind of i was able to hold on to them because the ratio was really off i would get one or two of those wonderful little moments followed by weeks of just awful hell and so i had to just believe that there was going to be a time when i could balance that ratio of good to bad but uh beyond that i also kind of had the world around me telling me that I couldn't blame all of my issues on anyone or anything else anymore because once I started traveling and I was in a place that was unfamiliar with people I didn't know with food I couldn't digest very well in a place that I couldn't you know speak the language in mm. suddenly the common denominator becomes for all of your issues is you. <laughs> is you right so I couldn't blame it on my job I couldn't blame it on my apartment or new york or any of these things it was very clearly me <laughs> wow which is rather sobering and kind of for me uh, gave me the push to get myself together because there just really wasn't anyone else to blame this on anymore wow um and then the, the last thing was is that i started doing an alternative form of therapy that really kind of cut deep into the issues that i was experiencing but perhaps could not articulate very well right And I continued to do this therapy as I traveled around the world because it was all done remotely over the phone. Okay. So I was able to call um, my my, uh, practitioner. His name is Edward. He started something called Compassion Key. He he has a very interesting story. He grew up super, super poor, like a dollar a day, kind of poor 
ultimately worked his way up through the education system, got a master's from Columbia, I believe, and then went on some sort of spiritual quest of sorts and had, you know, kind of like a lightning moment somewhere around the world. I don't know where he is, where he, this idea of self-compassion and how that can heal our inner wounds. Right, right, right. Um, was kind of formulated into something that could be done in more of a therapeutic way as opposed to, you know, something that is only done in spiritual retreat kind of thing. Right, so something with a practical application, yes. as it were. Yes, so he managed to package this, and uh, my mom actually said, I think you need to give this a shot, because she had heard him uh, talk on a radio show of some sort and said that it was really powerful to listen to, and then she gave gave uh, she gave me his name, and I was at the po- this point where I had been, is before I started traveling, I... Uh, had just gotten off my first drug and I was having really, really terrible withdrawal symptoms and um, had some pretty rough experiences with my psychiatrist and I was just desperate to do anything. And it was over the phone and I called him up and we had a, you know, kind of informational session. And by the end of it, I had, you know, I was in tears and out of total release and had felt like I had touched something that hadn't, ever been addressed in myself before wow. after being on the phone with him for 90 minutes so it's pretty amazing i just kind of believed that there was another option and went through it amazing amazing so you went on this journey <laughs> you were doing this therapy with ed edward so how long ago was that uh well, honestly, it's still ongoing, so I don't work with Edward on a regular basis anymore, but I still utilize the techniques and be able to right. not only use them on myself, but also there are about 100 practitioners, I think, around the world now. So I have worked with some of them, um, you know, kind of on a as-needed basis. Right. So as opposed to just uh, having, you know, like a group of sessions. Sure, and sure. So the so so the story is still unfolding, as it were. Um, so I mean, it is for everyone. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, ab- <laughs> absolutely. But I, th- I I guess the thing is, you kind of were on this this kind of global journey, and now, as you say, you're kind of uh, uh, what was the phrase you used around homeless? Categorically uh, homeless. Categorically <laughs> homeless. I love that. Uh, a digital nomad, as it were. Yes. Um So, you know, kind of what what happened between kind of finishing the the journey around the world and kind of where you're at right now. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of, there was never really an end to my traveling. Um, I was initially traveling with a group called Remote Year, which was established to take digital nomads, people who could work remotely, and give them a set itinerary with a set group of friends to travel with. So you and 70 strangers who wow. theoretically end up your best friends at the end of it, you go to 12 different places across uh, for a year. And that, my program ended in August. So I actually, my program itself, I was, was fairly dramatic. Like I actually quit the program in the middle of it because I thought I was going to move to Cambodia and then I didn't. And I came to Vancouver cause I had like just needed to get out of the States and <laughs> I ended up in Vancouver. I met a guy like left three days later. Now I'm back here because now, you know, he's my boyfriend and we're together. So I'm here all the time. <laughs> and it was, you know, so that's how I ended up in Vancouver. But once uh, my remote year program ended, I, you know, knew that I didn't want to go back to New York and go back to the life I was living. So mm. I just kind of kept staying on the road. And in the meantime, I had actually gotten uh, a book deal to write about my story, wow. which ended up falling through a couple couple weeks before I was supposed to turn in my first draft um it just wasn't a good fit for everyone so it turned out to be the absolute best decision uh you know I have a manuscript and now that's being kind of shopped around and that process is a little bit soul crushing for (laughs) a writer who's impatient but I know that it's ultimately gonna be the right move so that's kind of my big macro plan gotcha and then on a micro uh scale i you know i'm a professional chef by trade so right, right. i develop recipes which i'm luckily able to do wherever i am as long as there's a kitchen and <laughs> I do a little bit of travel and food writing and then um i do some crossfit coaching i've been doing crossfit for about four or five years now wow okay so it's it's a very peace patchwork life 
Yeah, but but not as, as as you say though, it, it allows us to kind of sit on a beach <laughs> in Vancouver at midday I, on a Friday. I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I I get very bored and distracted easily, so I like that I can jump from three different careers in one day uh, in order to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but I mean that that's kind of the reality of where life is mm-hmm. these days, isn't it? So, yeah. so so tell us a little bit about um the 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 book and obviously you've you've there was an opportunity there which is kind of now you you're going for a better fit but where are you kind of going with like the book and what do you what do you want to do with it so my book is a memoir and it's it's about what happened when i decided to get off these antidepressants and the therapy that i was using and kind of how that speaks to the consequences and side effects of our lives mm-hmm. like for me the thesis and the takeaway of the book is that i want people to realize that they can take control of their own lives but that they have to take control of their own lives they have to be in charge they have to ask the right questions they have to do things that feel right for them and that's never gonna make everybody happy and you're probably gonna piss a lot of people off right uh, in the process which i definitely did and i was definitely a jerk for a lot of my for a lot of my journey but it was you know I'm I'm not proud of being a jerk, but I'm proud of doing what I needed to do in order to change my position. Right, in right, the world. right. So the book is about that, um, and you know, it's like I said, it's a memoir. It's not scientifically based. It's not in how to of how to get off drugs. It's not you know, it's not talking about statistics. It's uh, none of that. It's just like here's my story. This is what happened to me, and hopefully, when people get a chance to read it, they will be able to realize that if they're you know considering getting off antidepressants that it is possible there's sure. not a lot of personal accounts of people who've managed to get off of them and stay off of them right so i do hope it falls into that uh that sphere a little bit but i also hope it falls into a little bit of a spiritual sphere that opens up people's minds um a little bit because you know this therapy that i was using required me to kind of go to some pretty weird places that could be described as something like akin to a past life or we could just say it's a metaphor that my brain had created in order to represent a uh in order to represent a situation so i don't really care how people take it yeah no you know um but the bottom line is when i was you know going through these things i would i was having these visions of situations that i had certainly never been in that had occurred in a time that was not now right right and yet directly related to some deep-seated issue that I was having. Right. And so what we would do is we would work with these kind of visions that I was having and uh, send it, send it, or very often the person, uh, self-compassion, kind of ask it what it was trying to tell me. Yep, yep, yep. Until we got to a point where I felt like that was healed, that the wound was clear, and that I could kind of just mentally let that go through, for me personally, a lot of visual exercises. Sure. I'm a visual person, but... Sure. For some people, you know, and they'll, they'll feel it kinetically in their body or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some people hear it or whatever it is. Yeah, so sure. I think whatever it is, it works. <laughs> well, I think that's that's the that's the key thing here. Right. I mean, um, you know, I, I'm a pretty spiritual person as well. But, you know, it's, it, it's not necessarily whether, it, whether it's like a past life or whether it is, as you say, uh, kind of a subconscious kind mm-hmm. of metaphor or whatever. Mm-hmm. The point is it had a tangible effect. Right. And it has something to tell you. I mean, like, I think we've become so good at, especially with technology moving as quickly as it is, and we have information so quickly, you know, things are changing from one day to the next, Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, what scientists are discovering, and, you know... Like, the big thing right now is mindfulness and meditation. Right, right. But it's not just mindfulness and meditation. It's the scientific community trying to figure out what it is about that that actually affects you. Right, right, right. And so that's changing constantly, and we have all this new information about it. And I think, you know, great. Like, I think it's fantastic that people are approaching these subjects from all different walks of life. But I I don't really care why my brain changes when I do this, like, as long as it works. Right. So for me, it's much easier to just kind of cut all that out and say, yeah, look, I was seeing this weird thing in my head and I had a conversation with it. And I don't care if you think that's weird, but this bird told me that I was having issues with this. So 
I talked to the bird. We apologized to the bird. We sent the bird some compassion, and now it's better. I can't explain it. It worked. I, like who cares? It, open it up worked. your mind and try it. It might work for you too. Yeah, absolutely. So, so given all of this, what, <laughs> yeah. was, um, what was it like, kind of going back and writing this memoir, kind of reflecting mm-hmm. on the journey you'd had? What kind of came out of that pro- process? You know, when I initially had realized that I needed to write this book and it was initially on a really tight deadline um what had happened was is I was in Chile Ch- Chile I mm-hmm. think yeah I was in Chile right and that was July and I knew that at the end of August I would be going back to New York City because I needed to like I had stuff there I mm-hmm. <laughs> had to deal with my life there before I decided if I was going to leave and so I was really nervous to go back to New York and not only to go back to New York, because that's kind of where all this started, and I had created such a negative connotation around New York City because, you know, with my it just got to a point where I didn't want to go outside of my apartment because I was just so uncomfortable in that city. Right, right. So I was nervous to go back there just on that level, but I was even more nervous to go back there and then get myself in a writing space where I was going to have to write about why being in New York was so <laughs> terrible right. a year ago. And I really didn't trust myself in the beginning i was afraid that going back into that place was kind of gonna just not it was gonna put me back in that place Mm. that i wouldn't be able to turn it off and that i would just be stuck in whatever the emotions were that i was feeling Mm -hmm. at the time and i was very scared of regressing right um but when i went back there what i found was that i was lucky that I was in a position where I had just sold my bakery. So I had a little bit of freedom to just focus on my writing. Right. And so I would spend, I had a goal of usually it was like, I think it was a thousand words or four hours a day, right. whichever came first. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that I was really able to actually shut myself off at the end of a writing day. And that, mm. As I, you know, kind of closed my eyes and I got into the writing and especially as I got into the more difficult part of the writing, like kind of reliving these experiences, for some reason when I was done, I was done. And I just, I didn't even have to try to, you know, put up any sort of uh, container or anything, Mm. like an emotional container to try and protect myself. It just, it almost felt like I was writing about someone else, but someone I knew really, really, really well. Wow, okay. And I took that as a sign of just pure healing. Yeah, yeah. That I was had gotten myself to a place where I was able to access the information I needed within me mm-hmm. and then not let it take over. It would have taken over, you know, a couple of years before. Yeah, it yeah, certainly yeah. would have taken over when I was just off my medication and right, couldn't right. handle anything in the world. Sure. So it was almost so. like um like a, an affirmation of closure, mm-hmm. as it were. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. So that was that was the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, what, what I love about about your your story, Brooke, is it's it, it's super authentic. And let's face it, kind of e- even using the, the the words kind of mental health are kind of not particularly right here because Mm-mm. you know we're we're in a much bigger thing. But right. but it's really up in mm-hmm. in the zeitgeist at the moment. You yep. know, there's a lot of stuff around. You know. Um, the fact that so many people uh, go through anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. whatever version of that, mm-hmm. and just and yet there's still a, a stigma attached to it right. and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, what what's your kind of thought these days, having mm-hmm. been through this, having kind of having a real new sense of self? Mm-hmm. What would you say to kind of anyone who's out there who is maybe suffering, mm-hmm. but is you know either not in a position to do something about it, or are scared to, mm-hmm. or you know? My kind of core belief about all of this is that anything surrounding the idea of mental health and even your physical health is really just information. Mm-hmm. It's it's your body, it's your soul, whatever you want to call it, trying to tell you something. Right. And the problem is, I think, is that a lot of times we say, okay, I'm anxious or I'm depressed, and we look at what's going on in our life right now. Right. As, and we try and find the source of the anxiety or depression in what's ever happening in your immediate world. Whereas, you know, I don't think that some of these things, they come from things that happened to us 20 years ago. They came right. come from things that happened as a child, maybe even things that happened when we were in the womb. Like all these sorts of things that are not necessarily related to the world we're in. So people look around, they say, okay, here's my situation. I can't do anything about X, Y, Z. 
which may or may not be true. There, you know, I do believe that yes, we're in the power. We have the power to change our lives and control everything around us. But mm-hmm. there are certain situations that you know you can't just wave a wand and have it change. You yeah, you yeah, can yeah. make small steps to change it, but it doesn't just change overnight. But by kind of looking at some of the things that happened to us when we were younger or just some of these nebulous feelings we have, I think that once we start to address those feelings, that's when we can actually alleviate the depression, the anxiety, or, you know, the whatever random physical ailment you have when you go to a doctor and they're like, well, we can't find anything wrong with you. But you're like, well, why am I sick? You know, (laughs) all these things, it's just, it's your body trying to tell you something. Um, So that's normally where, you know, when people ask me about when people ask me that question, I kind of say that the first question is to ask why, why am I, why is this happening? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What is this telling me? And that can be really hard to do because one, very often it's going to come back to you being the problem, which nobody wants to deal <laughs> no with. No one wants because, to hear that, right? Yeah. But also just that I, I would love to encourage people to be a little bit more selfish, specifically when it comes to doing the deep self hard work. Right. Um, you know, people want to shut down. They don't, they, they don't want to talk to anyone yep, yep, about yep. their issues. Um, mm. You know, and, you know, if they're like me, maybe they've gone to traditional therapists or psychiatrists and had experiences that result in medication, which I think are, you know, often a good band-aid, but kind of just mask the ultimate problem. Right. Or, you know, perhaps they just get disillusioned from the whole process anyway. They sit, they internalize, they let it stew, and then, you know, lo and behold, they get some sort of weird disease like 10 years down the line that's, you know, stress-related or something. (laughs) But there are so many different options and different ways for people to address their issues. And it takes you, Mm -hmm. takes you, uh, you've got to be the one to go out there and look for it. Like, Google it. I mean, start with Googling alternative depression therapies. Or, right, right, you right. Know, and just start following some threads. Try things for a little while. But, you know, the choices, I, j- I just don't believe that the choices are cope with depression, cope with antidepressants, or some hybrid of the two. Right. I, I, I really do believe that there is a way out of this. Right, and I mean take me the right way here you're a living example of that yeah. right here in front i can see that yeah you know so um so okay let's let's kind of kind of bring this into present okay. day as it were um you have written the book you're doing recipe development you're doing a bit of crossfit that mm-hmm. kind of stuff where do you see see this going as it were where do you have um uh, uh not necessarily a plan but do you have kind of thoughts about where you'd like it to go or are you just kind of taking it as it comes or i oh. You know, I have the sort of plan that is me not being able to sleep at night, or I just fantasize about 10 years into the future where I'm wildly successful and my book has been turned into a movie and all of these things that, you know, every creative has probably been uh, fantasizes about. And then <laughs> I have the more realistic, like, okay, what are you going to do about that in the next three months kind of thing? And so that's, that's really kind of where I live right now. I mean, when you don't know where you're going to sleep in a week or in a month, right. it kind of helps you to roll with the punches a little bit. So I'm trying to just be open to any experience that comes my way um, as far as being able to talk and tell my story. So I believe that the more I talk about it, the more the right people are going to hear it. And whether or not that's just people who, you know, they just take a little bit of maybe something I've said and they're able to apply it to their own life and it gets better. Or, you know, on the other end of the scale, you know, the right person who calls up and says, hey, I want to publish their book. Like, that would be awesome, mm-hmm. too. I'll definitely take that. But I like that I don't entirely know what my life looks like Yeah. right now. And it's forcing me to not be so future focused, right? Um, which comes with future anxieties. So, you know, it's a balance of not being frivolous with mm-hmm. what I have, but also not giving too much thought about what's going to happen totally in the future like you know it's good to have a nest egg but i don't need to pinch every penny just just in case kind of thing yeah absolutely absolutely (laughs) so um so given that you've kind of been through you know lots of kind of Mm self-exploration and all that kind of thing what do you do now on a daily basis to kind of what what's your kind of self-care look like now 
you know, I'm not too big on hard set routines. I mm. kind of take, I kind of know what I'm going to do the next day, maybe the night before. Uh, if I have a day where I'm going to be doing a lot of heavy personal writing, I usually start with uh, some sort of, about 45 minutes of just kind of mind dump journaling. Right. That is, you know, highly uninteresting and usually just says things like, oh, I need to do the laundry and there's a bird outside, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But it, I do it all by hand just to kind of focus for that 45 minutes. If I'm not having a day where I'm doing heavy, heavy personal writing and I'm either doing more like, uh, you know, some food writing or something that's a little bit just less that requires less of a deep flow. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I might start the day with a little 10 minute meditation of some sort or just some quiet, quiet sitting. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I try and move in some capacity every single day. If I can walk as opposed to drive, I'll do it, even right. if it takes an extra hour. Like, I walked here today. It took me an hour. I could have taken a bus in 10 minutes, but I decided to walk. And um, that's kind of it. I'm, I'm pretty stringent about how and what I eat. Like, mm. I'm a professional chef, so I love going out to eat, but I feel so much better when I'm careful about what I put in my body. So I... I tend to keep most of my meals the same and then I'll mix it up once in a while. Cool, cool. Um, for, you know, a dinner out or something. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Makes sense. But beyond that, I don't know. I'm fairly boring. Like, at this <laughs> point, I, I, I stay... I, I don't do I, much. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I stare at a computer, but other than that, like... I don't think <laughs> the word boring is the one that would spring to mind for me personally. But well, you know, the highlights are on the internet, but when, you know, everything else in between is a lot of just sweatpants and computer time <laughs> absolutely that's the, the life the life of the yeah. digital generation yep. right <laughs> um <laughs> so if you were kind of i mean you you for take me the right way here i don't mean this sound kind of condescending or anything yeah, but no, for someone who who is kind of relatively young mm -hmm. you've built a lot of wisdom <laughs> um so if you were kind of looking back now mm -hmm. giving some advice to say your your then fifteen year old self. Yeah, my fifteen year old um, what would you what would you say to her? Well, my fifteen year old self wouldn't have listened and I think that's the that's the general issue, right? Like I'm sure there were people running around telling me smart things and I just refused to listen to it. I feel like I've only started to learn to listen in my thirties. Right. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, there's kind of that point when you start noticing your first few wrinkles and your body's not working the same anymore. And it's just kind of like, ah, oh, crap, I think I physically peaked and I don't know what I'm talking about. So now as my body goes downhill, I need to work on my mind and my wisdom in order to <laughs> balance myself as a person. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad we're saying this on my 46th birthday. <laughs> Thank you, Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, you're about to go get all sorts of wisdom on your on your on your quest. So, well, this this, this is true. This is true. So, uh, uh, on all of this, though, what what's the what's the best piece of advice you've been given? You know, I think probably the one that sticks with me most was last year. Someone just kept telling me to stay flexible, mm. and I felt like, at least for last year, and, and just in general, that's just really just it's a good piece of solid wisdom because the bottom line is no one's life is ever going to be predictable even the most predictable of lives still have you know some stuff that comes up and it's so much easier to just lean into whatever has come at you and just like shrug your shoulders and say like okay i thought i was going straight but <laughs> there's a roadblock <laughs> sign there so now we're turning like uh. it's so much easier easier to operate under that pretense than under the one where you're trying to micromanage every little thing that comes at you um and i find that when you start get, become a little bit more flexible you also become more open to noticing when opportunities come your way right it kind of drives me nuts when i hear people say like they can't change anything or no one cares about them or all of these things and it's just like no that's not the case you're just not seeing it right now right. You're, just, you're not looking at it yeah yeah, yeah. and you know it's kind of like that thing where everyone says oh you never notice cars on the road until you get that one particular car and then you see those cars everywhere right 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 so by staying flexible and just kind of paying attention to all the weird little things instead of just dismissing them right away you start to notice all these bizarre things that come in like for example getting to chat with you this, this afternoon you know like 
you emailed me out of the blue and you know the me of five years ago might have said like oh I don't want to do that that's embarrassing or who the hell knows <laughs> I might have just dismissed it or deleted it but yeah (laughs) absolutely absolutely you're gonna die at the end of the day who cares (laughs) right 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 um (laughs) (laughs) the the the, the, one of the things that's coming through loud and clear for me here is this kind of notion of the word responsibility Mm -hmm. and you know i think for a lot of people you know including for me for a very long time that word is almost like when people say you are 100 percent responsible for your life that's both the best news and the worst news on the planet, mm-hmm. right? Because, right. as you say, there's no one else to blame, right. as it were. What is... Um, it, that can be quite a hard message for people mm-hmm. to hear, even mm-hmm. though I think it's completely 100% true. Especially for people who feel like what has happened to them is totally out of their control. Like right. So yeah. how... What's the piece of advice you'd give that person to kind of ease into that kind of message, as it were? You know, I think it's a combination of, I think there's a lot of forgiveness involved uh, and a lot of compassion that needs to happen and not necessarily, you know, forgiveness is a hard word because especially for people who mm. are wronged by adults, if they were children or who feel like they had something taken away from them. You right. know, it's like, um, you know, there's so much anger mm-hmm. surrounding that, but I think giving yourself the space to grieve and act in a way that perhaps is not considered I don't want to use the word appropriate but attractive Mm -hmm. like you know I think grief happens throughout our lives constantly and not just for people or loved ones who have died Um, I think we grieve all parts of our lives pretty pretty frequently like you know if you're living in a place for a decade and you move and it's really emotional because you're grieving the life you're living right, you left there you know right, you right. grieve relationships you've lost even if people didn't pass away you grieve jobs you had that meant a lot to you so there's this constant state of grief i think that people are always in but they don't give themselves the forgiveness or the compassion to actually feel that mm. and to experience the process that is needed in order to move through it. So then we hold on to all that stuff and it, you know, it, it bottles up over time and grief in general is just such a bitch because it's not linear. It's very cyclical and it's often triggered by things that have no relevance to what you, to the issue, right? Like, you know, you're a loved one passes away and then two years later you're walking on the street and you see a flower and you start crying and you're like, what the hell? You don't realize (laughs) that, that flower was in your grandmother's garden and you hadn't thought of it. You know, right. it's just so out of the blue. But when that's kind of happening to us all the time, we have to understand that we are going to have emotions regarding or surrounding all of the things that happen to us. It's not something that needs to be pushed out. It's something that needs to be experienced because if we don't experience, it's just going to keep coming up more and more and more and more right. until it hits you over the head so hard that you are emotionally or mentally incapacitated in one way or the other and you are forced to deal with it and that is way worse than just having a good cry once a week and appearing vulnerable absolutely absolutely and let's face it we we kind of exist in a well i guess west i'm generalizing about western societies Mm -hmm. here but we're kind of almost in a society these days where um we're it's so head driven Mm -hmm. and we're almost so scared of emotion and mm-hmm. like kind of stuff and i think that almost plays you can almost see it playing out on the macro stage right yep. imagine what world politics would be like if we actually just dealt with some of our pent-up emotions seriously um yeah. quite quite amazing <laughs> as it were so um there's a i get a really strong you know there's a very strong narrative here to mm-hmm. everything you're saying around you know it's really it's okay to and actually mm-hmm. it's necessary to really allow that emotionality to come right. through and all of that kind of stuff. I think I think it's a requirement that is so overlooked. Um, we really don't teach people how to cope with emotion of any kind. It's always like, oh, you're feeling badly? Like, fix it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. Fix it. Uh, and, you know, like, 
obviously that's I you know we, we all understand that right like nobody wants to see somebody else in pain no right um also you know I don't have children, but I've watched friends whose kids are screaming, and all they want to do is stop it, not only to help the kid feel better, but for their own sanity. Like, right, right. You know, it's difficult to see other people in pain. You can't do anything about it. It also can be really annoying sometimes, like that friend who's always down in the dumps. Like, nobody wants to be around that person. So right. it's always like, fix your shit and be happy. But the thing is that coping and happiness, it's like it's, it's a skill. It has to be practiced, and we don't get a chance to practice it unless we go through it and actually make a conscious effort uh, to fix it. Um, but there was, <laughs> I think there's a, it's in Sweden. It's one of the Nordic countries. I can't remember. It has this right. really, really wonderful practice. I believe it's at a college where at the same time every night, it's like 11 o'clock right. or something. All the students stick their head out the window and scream at the top of their lungs. Seriously. And they just scream out their grievances or their stresses around oh their God. exam or whatever it is. And it's like this alarm bell that runs over the campus where people just scream to That's get it out. Amazing. And I think all the time about like, what could this world be like if it was somehow acceptable or we had a safe place to have like a screaming practice. Right, right, because right. Because there's so much of, you know, what I personally have worked on was has been this overwhelming feeling of just wanting to scream at the top of my lungs because I'm so angry. Right, so filled right, with rage right, and right. so angry. And it's so inappropriate in public, <laughs> right? Right. Like, unless you're two, you're not allowed to do it. <laughs> That's great. So I spent a long time trying to figure out how to actually, like, deal with that because the only thing that was making me feel better was to scream at the top of my lungs which was really unsafe felt really unsafe yeah yeah yeah. Uh, and so you know i you know i I mean this makes me sound nuts but whatever you know you start screaming into pillows like you go underwater and you just scream at the top of your lungs whatever it is just once i started doing it like i felt so much better because whatever was in me just finally got out and that's how it manifested for me it's just like this verbal need to get it out so, you know, I, I looked at that college and wherever it is, and I just kind of, you know, had these fantasies about being able to stick my head out the window along with everybody else in the neighborhood and just scream for like 30 seconds. And then <laughs> everybody goes back about their lives and it's just like, eh, yeah, this is what we do. Like, I love that. That's yeah. I can't remember. Who, well, I remember speaking to someone once. I was talking about they had this idea of like uh, a, a light bulb smashing booth. So mm-hmm. basically, um, you know, when you're really angry, you could go in and just like smash light bulbs. And, and I think... Oh God, there's so much glass. I know, right? be careful with that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think the screen is probably safer. But, right. but the, the truth is with, with emotion, there comes energy, right? Right. And, phys- and that's physical energy. So yeah. we have to do something with right. it. So, you know, what I love about that is when you actually like allow yourself to scream or, yeah. you know, I don't know, mash the pillow as yeah. I've done a few <laughs> times or whatever, you can actually do something you're doing something about it and then you get Mm -hmm. some kind of perspective right um which is amazing yeah and people say you know they're like oh that's why i go to the gym or this is why i do boxing and you know i i you know someone who's been very physical my whole life and you know i i love to lift weights and grunt in the gym and all that it's fine but unless i'm feeling that huge amount of emotion right in that moment it's like it doesn't really transfer for me so it's always been the struggle to figure out okay like if it's two o'clock on a Tuesday and I am really angry and just want to, you know, scream and I'm in an apartment where other people can hear me, like, what do you do? And then you just kind of feel like there's nowhere to do it. Right. Like, I want to rent a soundproof room. Absolutely. And just right. be able to, yeah, like start start leaning into uh, some sort of crazy screaming rock music. Like, that's why they do it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> there really is a business opportunity here, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I've been knocking around this business idea, which... Uh, it, it it requires some skills that I'm not necessarily sure I have, like, you know, knowledge of real estate and all those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, I feel like you get a room, pat it, you put some Nerf balls in it or something, and let people, <laughs> you know, just lose their minds. And then, you know, on the other side of it is they walk out, and there's, like, this lovely little Zen Buddhist garden or something where you can kind of calm down, have some tea, touch a crystal or whatever, and, you know. And we'll have some lovely shaman or something come and bless the room after each person is I love screamed it. in it. Yeah, I think it should happen. I th- absolutely, I can totally see that, mm-hmm. and I can see like a global chain of them. Mm-hmm. All, exactly. You know, perfect. Yep. perfect. So okay. Ju- <laughs> <laughs> so just, uh, just a couple more questions, just to bring this yeah. home. As well. <laughs> I've just seen that, seeing they're touching the amethysts, you uh-huh. know, and that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, um, 
final two questions, and these are kind of quite big ones that I always mm-hmm. ask every okay. guest. So the first one is, you know, the Mavericks, we're all about creating a world that works for all. Mm-hmm. That's kind of our big MO. Mm-hmm. So if there was one change you could make in the world, what would that change be, and what would be your first step towards it? Uh, yeah, pr- have to. Prior- okay, so the first one is just to prioritize the deep self-work. You know, I'd love for there to be, like, everyone to have a dedicated hour twice a week where you know they have someone who they can call and talk to that doesn't cost seven hundred dollars an hour right right Um, right. you know that's actually functional and works for each individual person and for people to be willing to go and do the hard places and not avoid the emotion because if you heal yourself that reflects around the rest of the world right right um so you know that's my spiritual answer my practical answer is that i think that for six months right out of college or high school everyone should have to work in food service or retail <laughs> should people just become less of jerks <laughs> yeah. well i certainly did that i worked at pizza hub six yeah. months so you know i, yeah. I, I, I think it box. should be mandatory like you can choose you can either go to like an army boot camp or you can work at olive garden whatever it is you're gonna get yelled at you're gonna have like crap happen to you and you're gonna become a more compassionate person when you're talking to others ego management <laughs> i love yeah. it i absolutely love it <laughs> didn't see that one coming so there you go Brooke I, uh, it's been an amazing conversation thank you so much for uh, for joining on this amazing day in Vancouver oh my god I can't quite believe it um, I love uh, the amount of wisdom you have um, that you're so just open about everything you've been through and I think you know that is a real if people if that's what comes through in the book and that's what people get then that's going to help a mm-hmm. lot of people and i really love that and i love that it's kind of almost a, a calling for you to do yeah that. um so thank you yeah. so much for joining us today on the mavericks you're welcome podcast. thank you so much for having me and uh there you go mavericks this was uh krish with brooke seam and uh, i'll see you next time on the mavericks unlimited podcast bye for now bye thanks so much <laughs> hey listen up don't go yet did you get something meaningful after this episode Well, the most meaningful thing that you can do right now is to go and leave a review on iTunes because those reviews are what keep us here. And please make sure to share and to subscribe to this podcast. Finally, are you unleashing your superpowers? Well, if so, show us on Instagram with the hashtag Mavericks Unlimited and we'll see you over there. And with that, thanks so much for listening to the Mavericks Unlimited podcast at mavericksunlimited.com. Bye for now.